The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Listen now to John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And it was now the third time he had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Feed my lambs. He went to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper And it said, Lord, 
who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thanks be to God for this wonderful gospel. In a book with a simple title, The Call, author Os Guinness a number of years ago made this statement. Listen, God calls us to himself as disciples so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have becomes filled with new power and is henceforth offered up in response to his call to us for service. We've already heard the purpose of John's gospel stated last week in John 20:31. These things are written in order that believing Jesus is the Christ, you might have life in his name. Now, if you stare at your page, couldn't you say that if the Gospel of John ended there at verse 31 of chapter 20, you wouldn't think, why, this is an incomplete gospel. I I need more. You wouldn't think that. In fact, some would look at it and say, well, we've had the purpose statement right here. What do we need chapter 21 for? It, it It looks like maybe it's an appendage added on. And in fact, it looks like another hand than John's did indeed pen the last couple verses because it speaks in a different voice in verse 24 of chapter 21, identifying that this indeed, John, is the one who was there with Peter that day. And it's someone else saying, this is the one who wrote these things down. But people wouldn't say, well, we're poorer because we don't have John 21. If it wasn't there, you wouldn't even notice it. But, of course, we do regard this as a genuine part of the gospel. And God has a message for us to hear it. We can't act as if we've heard everything we need to hear at the end of chapter 20. Let me illustrate what I mean here in a practical way. We, a few weeks ago, celebrated Easter. And like every other Christian congregation around the land, our numbers were swollen greatly out of proportion of a regular Sunday attendance. We never know whether we're going to have enough chairs to set up or what, but we managed to get everybody in. And for two services, we had almost 1,500 folks in in this sanctuary on Easter Sunday morning. Well, I don't speak to indict anybody particularly. I would like to believe and I want to believe that everybody who came was coming to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing had life in his name. But, of course, I don't know that. I don't know everyone's heart. And when I see what happens the Sunday right after Easter, when we drop back to about 1,100 folks present instead of 1,500, 
I have to wonder. It's a little bit like folks are saying, well, uh, I love the wonderful event of Easter, and I believe this, and, and it's great to make fanfare over this, but then I'm gone. 400 people didn't seem to need anything beyond the Easter truth, and, and indeed, you might say, in a, in a manner of speaking, they don't need John 21. They're content with John 20. I believe. That's all there is. That's all I need. Well, it seems to me that John 21 is a further call to a Christian once you have believed Jesus is the Christ and believed that God raised him from the dead. There's an ongoing call here to seek him beyond just Easter itself. And Jesus in this passage says, follow me. Don't just believe in me. Follow me. And in fact, that becomes the closing theme of this gospel as we look at this last chapter this morning. And I would say to you again what Os Guinness wrote. Here we are confronted with the call of the living God, the risen Lord, a call that says that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is claimed by Jesus as you are his obedient and faithful disciple. First of all, I'd ask you to look at the first 14 verses as a unit this morning and see that a disciple is called into fellowship with Christ that empowers service. Fellowship with Christ empowers service. We see these disciples, it's, it's the aftermath of, of the excitement in Jerusalem when the tomb was first opened. Jesus has already appeared, so what we're going to hear is not his first resurrection appearance, but a subsequent one. And you might wonder, well, why didn't uh, people stay around in Jerusalem? Why were they up in Galilee, which is some miles to the north where they had originally come from? Maybe you think, well, they were they wanted to get out of the big city for a relaxing weekend or something like that. Well, it, it really isn't a, a mystery. We know why they had left, because they had been instructed to do so. Matthew 28.10 has Jesus saying, Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. So they were obeying the Lord's instructions. Why exactly he wanted them to go there it was his business, of course. But they were doing this not out of boredom or out of distraction or out of disobedience, but really out of obeying his instructions. When you think about it, the disciples were in a rather awkward place. They had become convinced that the Lord was alive and risen, and, well, what do you do now? You know, there's no instruction manual that says, uh, you know, they have these things in the bookstore now on every different subject you can imagine, you know, uh, something or other for dummies. Uh, there wasn't discipleship for dummies, I don't think, or how to be an apostle for dummies. Nothing like that existed. There was no career manual to tell them what they should do next. The Lord had said, go to Galilee, I'll meet you there, and we'll take it from there. So they were waiting on the Lord, waiting to receive his further instructions. And why not fish? They needed to make a living. Their families needed to eat. They were occupying themselves in a worthwhile way. Fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and by the way, the Sea of Tiberias, as it's called here, is the same place. It's two names for the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is the Roman city there along the, the lake. Here they were fishing at night, which they, was when they commonly did fish. 
and they hear a voice along the shore. They weren't too far offshore. Someone calls out, how's the fishing? Natural call, perhaps, for someone to make, seeing a a boat with fishermen, and they tell the truth, not so good. We've been working all night and have caught nothing. Well, that voice calls out and says, try the nets on the other side. I'm actually kind of surprised that Peter didn't jump out of the boat right there. Because if he really had a good memory, he would have remembered this wasn't the first time that this happened. There was an earlier occasion when Jesus was really rather unknown to them, and he called this and said, put the nets over there, and they did, and they were filled with an overwhelming shoal of fish. But why exactly they did what a stranger told them to do is is a little bit hard to say, but they did. They threw the nets where they were asked, and you read what happened, a great quantity of fish. And as minute that happened, John was the one, it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, we know. It's been his way of talking about himself throughout this gospel. John said, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter didn't need to hear anything else, did he? He threw on his outer garment, jumped out of the boat and waded and swam or however He got himself, propelled himself as fast as he could go to the shore. I can can picture the man. And, of course, I I didn't actually see him. but, But we know enough of Peter to maybe have an accurate picture. Here he is soaking wet. His beard and his hair are wet. And he falls on the shore in the sand. And there's sand in his beard and his hair. And I just think he was laughing. Laughing with delight and with worship and with pure joy to see his Lord as he came on shore there. What an appealing scene it makes as we read here. This is Jesus in his glorified body. And yet he wasn't, you know, arrayed in some temple where people had to come and pay homage to him. He was here as a common man. He had started a fire and had some fish of his own. Maybe he purchased and some bread and he had breakfast getting ready. How welcome could anything be after a hard night of work on the lake? And these men come, and here's the Lord. Come, have breakfast. This is one of the most inviting scenes in all the Bible, isn't it? The intimacy of fellowship that the Lord himself, the risen God, isn't above cooking breakfast for his friends, for his disciples. We think of Psalm 78 that speaks of God quote, spreading a table in the wilderness for weary people. Here he sits down, and they share this, and they don't even have to say, tell us who you are. Notice it says they, did, they didn't even think it was necessary. They knew who it was. They knew it was the Lord. And they must have reveled with delight in that. You could think, if you want, and extend out into other scriptures and think of what the Bible prophesies will happen at the end of time in the new heaven and the new earth when believers are gathered with Christ into what's called the great marriage supper of the Lamb. My wife and I were at a wedding reception yesterday afternoon. Believe me, you you know from your own experience, you don't go to a wedding reception for, uh, you know, sad faces and everybody to give bad news and feel sorry for each other. You're there for pure joy. A wedding is a time to have happiness and fellowship and 
simply revel in the company that is there. So is this. What is the message here but that Jesus Christ wants intimate fellowship with his people? We have that fellowship through worship in times like this this morning, in private times of prayer and study of the Word of God, in small groups perhaps as you gather with some other Christians at the Lord's table. Jesus says, come and dine with me, inviting us to be refreshed in the knowledge of who he is and be in his presence. Many of you might think of the words in Revelation 3.20 when he says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door, I will come and dine with him, and he with me. Here's Christ, the risen, glorified Christ, not yet ascended to heaven, but he's sitting down in the midst of ordinary. He cared about the ordinary daily activity these fishermen were doing. He cared enough to show them success when they had had a night of no success and of hard toil. He cares about the mundane things we do in our everyday lives. And and under his supervision, what we do can be far more effective and fruitful than it would be without him present in our lives. We might ask ourselves, are we living in the midst of our everyday business, whatever it is that you do, teaching students or managing a manufacturing process or if you're a dentist, filling someone's teeth or I don't know what you do. There's so many occupations in our our midst here that we do. Do we go about our daily tasks responding to and obedient to the call of Christ that that even our daily work is something he cares about and can be part of and it will be better done if we are responding to him and trusting in him than if we are not well we get power in our Christian lives from fellowship with the Lord but secondly comes this unique conversation between Peter and Jesus here in verses 15 to 17 and You've all heard this before. I don't think there's too much mystery in anybody's mind. Why did Jesus question Peter three times? Why? Because he denied Jesus three times. Why was he sort of hard on Peter? You know, if you look at this, it almost seems like Jesus is rubbing salt in a wound here. Peter already felt ashamed for having... Uh, denied the Lord. We read earlier in the Gospels how he went out and bitterly cried after he did this cowardly thing. And the other disciples were aware that he'd done it. Maybe, Maybe they were a little mistrustful of him now, not quite looking to him as their leader in the same way anymore. But here Jesus presses this question, and the question is, do you love me? And Peter seemed to think it would have been fine if he said, well, sure I do. You know, isn't it true that wives will so often ask their husband, do you love me? Well, of course I do. Well, you don't ever tell me. I'm looking for you to tell me. I'm looking for you to show me. And so again, Simon, do you love me? Lord, I just said it. Yes. Peter, do you love me? Jesus wanted an encounter with this question by Peter by way of reaffirming and leading him, I think, in what he was saying to a kind of repentance. Almost as if the man had an infected wound and you were the doctor and, you know, someone comes into your office as a doctor and here's this wound and it's kind of green around the edges and it's got ugly stuff in it and 
you say, well, I'm going to have to hurt you a little bit. And you lance the wound and you clean it out and that doesn't feel so great and you give a shot of penicillin and whatever, but you've done what was needed to clean out an ugly wound. That's what was going on here. Peter needed to have the wound of repentance cleaned out and to authenticate it and declare it. You see, Jesus asked the question, and and commentators puzzle over it when he said, do you love me more than these? And they say, well, what's these? What's the pronoun? Do you love me more than your fishing boat? Do you love me more than being a fisherman and catching a big catch? Do you love me more than you love your friends here? I don't think any of those are what he was being asked. Peter was being asked, are you trying to tell me, Simon, that you love me more than these other disciples love me? Why do we think that's what was being said? If you would think back, you remember Peter making bold declarations not very many days before this when he said, Lord, no matter who will stand by you, no matter, because Jesus had said, you know, all of you are going to leave me. Oh, no, not me. Lord, I don't, if John over there leaves you, I won't leave you. If Thomas leaves you, I won't leave you. If all of them leave you, I'll be with you, Lord. I'll be loyal to the end. Who was the one when first challenged? Oh, you were with him, weren't you? No, no, not me. No, you've got it wrong. Sorry. The minute Peter had been challenged, he was shown that he actually loved Jesus less because he was the one who was the traitor, not the traitor in Judas' sense, but the denier that he knew Jesus. So he needed to understand, Peter, you don't love me better than anybody else. You're not superior in your ability to love me. You need to see yourself as something Paul would later call himself the least of all saints. You need to see yourself in your weakness and your brokenness. And understand that I know you that way, and it's important that you know yourself that way. And we think when Peter finally said, Lord, you know I do love you, he was a de- now a dependent and contrite man. Sort of as if he was clinging to Jesus like he was clinging to the last deck chair that came off the Titanic, holding on lest he sink clinging, not confident, not egotistical, not arrogant. I'm the best one you've got. No, Lord, I just love you. 1 John 4.10 has John writing to say in that epistle, here is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's exactly what Jesus was saying here. If you really think you love me, serve my people, serve my lambs, serve my sheep. And I say this is God's calling that comes to us and challenge. Not just are we ready to respond to John 20, 31, These are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life. I sure hope you've gone that far with Christ. But he challenges you to come farther and follow him in a calling to serve, to lay down your life. 
And the motivational power of love for Christ is the engine that's going to drive that service. He's trying to tell us everything we've received is pure grace. We can't tell Christ, boy, Jesus, I'm sure you're, you're really glad that you have somebody great like me in your service because I can do everything you need. Guess what? Somebody with that attitude can do absolutely nothing for the Lord. It needs to be someone who is flat on his face like Peter saying, Lord, I do love you. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer died on an April day, as this is an April day, in 1945, just before the war ended. Bonhoeffer wrote in his call of discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. He didn't necessarily mean you were going to die the way he did, hung by Nazis for disloyalty to the Nazi regime because he stood for Christ. But he did say, you need to come and die like Peter was dying right here, dying to himself, dying to his ego, dying to his self-sufficiency, laying down his life, and knowing perhaps for the first time that those who are forgiven much are the ones who love much. Real Christian service happens when ordinary men and women see their lives transformed by the grace of God and offer up their brokenness to Christ. Take your brokenness, Peter, and feed my sheep. Take the weakness that you're realizing now, finally. Stop the bravado that has always had you beating your own chest and telling me how great you are. And in true humility, look around you and see people who are weak, See people who are struggling to believe in me. See people who need you to pray with them and teach them and encourage them. And that call comes to us. You say, maybe I'm not an apostle. No, you're not. But you are a witness of the resurrection, just as Peter was. One who can witness out of your own weakness. Look what Christ has done for me. This much I know. I was lost and he found me and he saved me. Someone once was introducing Hudson Taylor, the classic missionary who opened up China in a strong way generations ago. He was in England making his ministry known and seeking to raise funds for China. And someone gave Hudson Taylor, who was a very humble man, a a grandiose introduction. introduced him as the great missionary who has given his life to the Orient because he loves the Chinese people. Hudson Taylor got up, and before he could speak, he said, well, I'm sorry, I must correct the one who introduced me. I'm sure he did it uh, out of a genuine spirit, but I must tell you, my work has not been done because I love the Chinese. It's only because I love Christ. That's our call. You might be called to serve somebody who's very unlovely, some difficult person in your family or at your place of work that you just have a rough time getting along with and even believing God could love that person. He calls you to feed his sheep, feed his lambs, feed the weak people that are around you who need to see Christ and they're not going to see him unless they see him in you. Finally today, this passage closes by telling us we are called 
to persevere with Christ without being distracted by God's call to others. Do you know all the multitude of different ways God calls people? We prayed earlier for the ministry of Walt Mueller, who God has called in a very unique way to do absolutely unique things. I couldn't do the ministry that Walt does to save my life. But God has called Walt to that ministry, not me. And he's called me to this ministry, not Walt. And Peter is told here a strange thing. He's told that in his old age, he's going to give up control of his life. I think it was important for him to hear that because he was a guy who always determined his own fate. And he would have said, well, I, you know, nobody tells me what to do. That would have been Peter's theme. Well, he's told, Peter, somebody's going to tell you what to do. Now, bear in mind, John was writing this in the 80s or early 90s A.D., and Peter was already dead. So John knew what had happened to Peter when he wrote this. He was martyred in Rome on a cross. Legend says that when they went to crucify him, Peter pleaded to be crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to even die the way his Savior did. And here's John hearing Jesus say, they're going to take you away, Peter, and take you to a place that is not your will to go. And hearing that, Peter turned around and saw John there and said, well, hey, what about him? Is this true for him too? And Jesus said, rather bluntly, what is that to you? You follow me. We'll deal with him. I'm dealing now with you. How insidious is the worm of envy among Christians and among those who serve Christ. We see someone else who's maybe a five-talent person and we're a a one-and-a-half-talent person, and we say, wow, I'd love to be the five-talent person. There have been those people in my life. I'm very willing to tell you that ministers are envious of other ministers. Many of you would know I long looked as, as a model and a mentor to the ministry of Dr. James Boyce from Philadelphia. What a wonderful man of God Jim was. Gifts galore, intellect, ability to speak, writing, leadership. I admired that man very much and and said, I'm sure in my heart of hearts, I said, I wish I could be like him. But wait a minute. I didn't choose to be like Jim Boyce when God took him away with liver cancer at age 61. God has individual callings for everybody. He calls disciples one by one. He has called teachers here to be teachers, moms to be moms, some of you to be writers or to be leaders in various Christian movements, maybe just some small thing, maybe a small group of men or women who meet together to pray, and God has called you to be their leader at this point in time. How harmful it is to say, I wish I was that or I wish I was called to this. You catch fish where God has called you and love the Lord Jesus Christ and let love for him be the great overwhelming motivator of your service. Well, we're at an end of John. We started out with Peter being told early in the gospel, follow me by Jesus. And now, after all we've gone through, what is Jesus saying to him? Never mind what I'm calling anybody else. You follow me. 
The devotional writer Oswald Chambers said one time, We live our ordinary, apparently unobserved existences as disciples of Jesus, and some people come along and tell us we should strive to do grand, exceptional things for God. Chambers said, No, that's wrong. We will become exceptional by obedience to him in the ordinary things. We will discover personal holiness and effectiveness in the midst of the mean streets and the common affairs of each day's life when it is consecrated to Jesus Christ. God calls us to himself so decisively that by trusting the cross and resurrection, everything we are, Everything we do and everything we have is infused with a new power, the power of love for Jesus Christ, and it can be offered to his singular call for humble service in his great name. Thanks be to God for this wonderful gospel he gave us to have. Father, we pray. And we would have been changed by studying John. That Jesus' question, do you love me, would be directed to us. And we'd be ready to answer, Lord, you know, I do. May that question humble us. And yet, allow us, like Peter, to offer our brokenness, offer our mistakes, offer our stumblings, and say, Lord, if you can somehow use me, I will follow. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.